country in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and the signs which were done. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that the Samaritans had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw through the laying on of the apostles' hands that the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that on anyone whom I lay hands he may receive the Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God would be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Thank you. Well, good morning again, everyone. <laughs> what a blessing it is to be here. Sure, I've had a lot of news lately, hey, over the radio and on TV or however you get your news. Um, Cindy and I were talking yesterday about how much news there is. I said you can't even keep up with it. Um, and while we were talking about, it might have been Friday, I don't know, it was yesterday evening. Um, while we were talking about that, I had mentioned. Well, I didn't mention it to her. I was thinking about mentioning it, but we talked about something else. I was thinking to myself, it would be nice to have a slow news day. When's the last time we had a slow news day? And this morning, uh, as we were um, eating breakfast, well, I was eating breakfast and going through this message, and Cindy was over at the counter. She gasped like <gasps> like that, and I thought, what? What? You know, like just this emotive gasp. And it was something she read in the news that just shocked her. Um, but it's it's like that. Hey, there's so much news, and most of it isn't very good. But the church, the church has been given the best news of all, good news of great joy. And it's it's been almost 2,000 years ago since that was first announced. <laughs> Behold, I give you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. And we still have the same message. We have a message of good news for great joy. I was thinking, what would it be like if tomorrow morning all the headlines read on the front page, I bring you good news of great joy. There's a Savior and His name is Jesus. And it just started out like that. What, what a change that would make, hey? All these uh, news items would just fall in the background and people would focus in on, on the main thing, the big event, the big deal the good news of Jesus. Um, the title of this sermon, or this message, is Gospel Distinctions. Gospel Distinctions. I'll talk about that in a minute here. But let me start with a word of prayer, okay? 
Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word. Thank you for each one that's here. Father, I pray you bless our time in your word. Bless me as I proclaim your word. Um, guide me along. And uh, guide us as, as, as we interact with your word as well, Father. Do what only you can do. Remind us of things that we need reminding of and teach us new things, Father. Have us leave this place excited for the good news that we have to share with a world that desperately needs to hear it. In Jesus' name, for his glory, amen. Gospel distinctions, Acts 8, 9 through 25. I need to let you guys know, I've changed up the way I put my sermons together a little bit, and so my notes are completely different than they used to be, so I don't know, how, I have no idea how long this is going to take, okay? <laughs> because I was typing it out before, and I knew if I had so many words, and I had a feel for, if I got that many words, I know I'm going to add some words, and it's about this long. This is way different. So bear with me, okay? And when I get where we're going, I think we'll be better off in a, in a few weeks here. But gospel distinctions. Um, I'll try to have us out of here in a reasonable time. That's that's what I'm trying to say, okay? If I don't, um, forgive me. Um, gospel distinctions. What's a distinction? I thought, the you know, young guys in the back... Um, they're going to school, they might not know what a distinction is. A distinction can be defined in a couple of different ways. A distinction in the, in the term I'm using is excellence that sets someone or something apart from others. That's the kind of distinction I'm talking about. A distinction that takes someone or something and sets it apart from others, from other people, from other things. The gospel is distinct. The gospel is good news of great joy. It's good news from God to man, good news that is excellent. It's preeminent, you might say. It's excellent in its advent when it was first announced. It's excellent in its content, and it's excellent in its extent. It's excellent in all those ways and many other ways. So I want to talk to you about the excellency of the gospel. Three things that set the gospel apart. That's what we're going to look at today. Three things that set the gospel apart from all other messages, from all other news you might have, from all other messages, from all other messengers, from all other voices, three things that set the gospel apart from all those things. Because let's face it, we got a lot of messages coming our way, a lot of voices and a lot of messengers. But the gospel is excellent. It is distinct. It is apart from all those Uh, uh, Acts 8.25 is our bouncing back point, okay? If you look at Acts 8.25, it says, So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem. And what were they doing? And they were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. They were preaching the gospel of many villages to many villages of the Samaritans. This is the focus of this section of Scripture. The focus is not Simon. This text is not about Simon. This text is not about Philip. They're, they are players in this text. They're, they're active participants in what is going on and what God is doing. The, the focus of this text is not even the apostles. The focus is the gospel. That's the focus, the good news, the gospel. Um, we come to our text today, and it's obvious that we're looking at the gospel and its advance into and throughout Samaria. And the amazing truth that persecution and opposition do not slow the spread of the gospel, but in fact they fuel it and they purify the church for that spread. Persecution and opposition do not slow the spread of the gospel. So my first point is with regard to these three things that set the gospel apart from all other messages is this. The gospel gives no quarter to rivals. The gospel gives no quarter to rivals. I'll explain that in a minute. But I ask you to picture your favorite salad. I'm not a big salad guy, but I do like a good salad, and I like it my way. And I don't want to describe what my way is, but you guys just think of your best... If you were to put something on a salad, I don't know, maybe it's lettuce, maybe it's spinach, maybe it's chicken, maybe it's garbanzo beans, maybe it's croutons, maybe it's cheese, maybe it's red onion, maybe it's white, I like a lot of onion on my salad. Maybe it's black olives, I love black olives. Prime rib, never done that. Prime rib, I'll have to try that on your salad. But just think of your favorite salad. 
and you've got it all fixed up just the way you want. You've got your favorite dressing on there and you know this is going to be good. And now let me come to your house and you, you made one for me too. Let me come to your house and I'm going to grab your vacuum cleaner and I'm going to open the bag and I'm going to take about just a handful, a little handful of that stuff in that vacuum cleaner and I'm going to sprinkle it on that salad, right? All of a sudden it's not your favorite salad. You know, there's, there's nothing there that's Ugh, you don't want that, right? I want you to consider that with regard to the gospel, okay? As we go through what we're talking about today. The gospel gives no quarter to rivals. It is an it has an unparalleled, it is unparalleled in its message. There are competing messages, let's just acknowledge that, but the gospel is unparalleled in its message. To give quarter is, is like this. So there's a war. If you're a military guy, maybe you already know what this is. If, you start, if you're a historian, to give quarter is there's a war and the victorious army is conquering the other army and they take prisoners and what do they do? They take them back and they give them quarter, right? They, they take care of them. They, they give them a place to live. Might not be the best place, but they give them a place to live. Might not be the... In fact, you know some of those places they were that prisoners of war are given are terrible places, but they're given a place to live. They don't just execute them. But the gospel gives no quarter to its rivals. The gospel defeats it, its rivals. It shows no compassion. It takes no prisoners. Old ideologies cannot be blended together with Christianity. That's my point. Old ideologies cannot be blended together with Christianity. They cannot occupy the same place or the same space just it's just like that salad you got that beautiful salad and you take some of your old ideology and you sprinkle it on this beautiful salad that you're going to enjoy and it ain't it's unedible they can't occupy the same place it's obvious as as patrick read this and if you follow it along closely it's obvious that luke is presenting his reader and that's us today with the next stage in the Great Commission. And that stage is the Gospel coming to Samaria. Jesus had promised a geographical expansion of the Gospel. He promised that in Acts 1.8. He promised there would be a geographical expansion of the Gospel. And this is what's happening. And Luke is, Luke is relaying it to us, how that took place, relaying it to Theophilus. But that expansion is not without opposition. The gospel has come into an arena, you might say it that way, the gospel has come into an arena in which it's going to do battle. That, that's the reality. The gospel is a confrontational message. There are strongholds into which the gospel enters. When the gospel entered into my life, there were strongholds into which the gospel entered. But the gospel gives no quarter to rivals. It gives no quarter to rivals. Let's look at this now. Acts 8-9. There's this man. Now there was a man named Simon. Now there was a man named Simon. He's just a man. Simon is really an uncomplicated person. I don't think he's all that complicated at all. He's a man like many other men. You might say he's many other men. You might say he's typical. He's common, except for this one thing. He's practicing sorcery. He's, he's dealing in deception. Who was formerly practicing magic in the city. In the same city to which Philip had brought the gospel. There is this man that is practicing sorcery. It's easy to see. It's easy. I mean, just look at it. It's easy to see Luke is putting these two things in contrast for us. And it's the reality that the Gospel comes into. It is the reality that these people are faced with. There's this man, he's practicing sorcery, sorcery, magic, and there is Philip coming, bringing the Gospel. And the, and the distinctions between them. There are two men, two messages, two forces at work, Two forces at work in the same town. Two forces at work at the same time. Two competing influence. Two competing. Two competing influences in the same 
lives of the same people. Two competing influences over the same souls of men and women. It's obvious that Luke is putting it before us in that way. The place where the gospel came to, there was a rival. A rival who had staked a claim, marked out his territory. But the gospel gives no quarter to its rivals. While the preaching of the gospel brings joy and salvation, we saw that in, in Acts 8.8, 8, so there was much rejoicing in that city. The practice of Simon brought deception through sorcery or through magic. These things are mutually exclusive to each other. That dirt does not belong on that salad. This sorcery does not belong with the gospel. They are mutually exclusive. I got to thinking about that. I thought, you know, this might be some of Philip's eagerness to impart the gospel because the people have bought into this lie. Okay? They bought into this lie. And he's got truth to share with them. Look at verse 9 again. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria. He was astonishing these people. He was bewitching them. It's a word that means to fascinate or to overpower with evil. That's what he was doing. He was overpowering people with evil. Now they wouldn't have thought that. They wouldn't have thought, hey, that guy, he's doing that stuff and it looks all so fancy and looks so wonderful and we're all excited about that. They wouldn't have thought they were overpowered with evil, but they were overpowered with evil. It was an appeal to vanity or to selfishness. As Simon himself, Simon himself is a very selfish man, there were probably young guys and, and people his age that wanted to emulate Simon. I want to be like Simon. It's an appeal to vanity. Um, in 1 John 4, 1, it says, test the spirits to see whether or not they are from God. Whatever spirit is operating in Simon, it's not from God. And that is obvious. In Galatians 3.1, Paul says to the, to the Galatians there, who has bewitched you? Same word, who has bewitched you? And then he goes on to say, before whose eyes, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. He points them to the gospel. Paul points the Galatians to the gospel because they had been bewitched. Philip is pointing these folks in Samaria to the gospel because they had been bewitched by this sorcerer named Simon. The Bible tells us that the devil himself masquerades as an angel of light. Whatever influence Simon had over them, it was powerful. It could have seemed like it was all okay even. No big deal. But it'd be just like that dirt on that cellar. Look what else it says about Simon in verse 9. He was claiming to be someone great. I'm talking about the excellencies of the gospel compared to all other messages. Simon has a message, right? And his message is, I'm someone great. Wow, what a message. <laughs> He's the captain of self-promotion. While Philip proclaimed Christ, Simon proclaimed himself. If you wanted to know what Simon thought of himself, you wouldn't even have to ask him. He might have had a sign on the front of his house, Simon the Great. <laughs> you know, he, might have been, he might have had that, who knows? But his practice and his proclamations and his publicity were his problem, and the problem just didn't stay with him. It bled over to other people. This is a self-centered man. He's a man like, what I say? He's uncomplicated. He's a man like so many others. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Yuck, right? Yuck. Lord, don't let me be that way. Simon's own self-image was a rival to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel gives no quarter to rivals. The gospel gives no quarter to rivals. Talking about the excellencies of the gospel. And one of the excellencies of the gospel is, one of the perfections of the gospel is, the distinction of the gospel is, it gives no quarter to rivals. Verse 10. And they all from the smallest to the greatest, we're giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. There's a bunch more yuck. 
they all were giving attention to him. That's who the gospel came to, all these people. From the smallest to the greatest, the gospel came to them. And where the gospel come to? Where there was this influence from the smallest to the greatest from Simon. And everyone in between. They'd all been given their attention to him. They were, they were submitting to his claims. They submitted to Simon's claims. They all gave heed to him, it says in the King James. It might have been typical of the Samaritan culture. A little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of this and here's our religion. Here's our God. We'll add Simon to that. We'll add Jesus to that. But the Gospel gives no quarter to rivals. You can't mix stuff in there. It says, it says they, and they, from the smallest to the greatest, we're giving attention to him saying and it's about to say that they're saying something, they're going to open their mouths to speak, and of all the things that could be recorded of what they have to say, this is what it says. They said, this man is what is called the great power of God. This sounds to me like an enthusiastic public praise of a man. The exaltation of a man. They acclaimed him. Was what they said true? Was this man the great power of God? Well, no. Whatever power he had, again, was not from God. But it is obvious that what they thought of him was wrong. It did not matter what they had experienced or felt or how astonishing those things were. Whatever that was, whatever they thought of him, it was wrong. Whatever pedestal they put this guy on, they weren't right to do it. It was wrong. The gospel gives no quarter to rivals. No, no rivals for attention. No rivals in beliefs. No rival ideas, philosophies, practices, powers, or persuasions. The gospel gives no quarter to rivals. Ephesians one twenty one says that of speaking of Jesus says he is for he is above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. The gospel is the gospel of Christ, so it gives no quarter to rivals. It doesn't surrender any ground to rivals. It doesn't let people come and add stuff in. You can't blend some mix in with the gospel. The great power of God. He claimed to be a great power, and they called him the great power of God. You know, before we're done with this message, and it's already been read for us, but the Holy Spirit's going to come. Now that is power, right? That's the power of God. And the Gospel is the power of God unto salvation. But it does seem Simon was in possession of some kind of power. Or that power was in possession of him. And they were saying, this man, man exalting, a man exalting deception. Any man-exalting philosophy or religion or ideology is a deception. Let me just say that again. Because you could be just blanking out. I've been going on and on for a little while here. Any man-exalting ideology, philosophy, theology, any man-exalting thing like that is a deception. And it's not from God. Any man-exalting philosophy, religion, ideology is a deception. The gospel of Jesus Christ will give no quarter to rivals, anything other than the gospel of Christ is vanity. Even Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says to the Corinthians, who is Paul? Who is Apollos? Who is Cephas? Was Paul baptized? Were you baptized into Paul, rather? Paul, Apollos, a powerful preacher. Paul wrote so much of the New Testament. Cephas, who is Peter, the apostle Peter. Some call him the, you know, the number one apostle there. And Paul says of, of himself and those guys, who are we? Any man-exalting philosophy, religion, ideology is a deception. If some guru comes along in this age and says he's something, guess what? He's nothing. Any guru of any form, of any shape, of any, any genre, whatever, they're nothing. If Apollos and Paul and Peter are nothing, 
verse 11. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. How, how hungry are people for some connection to the spiritual, eh? I can remember before I was, became a believer. I can remember seeing some weird, funky things, some spirituality, and there was a draw there. How hungry people are for anything spiritual, anything that might be genuinely spiritual. And they were all giving him attention. They were all giving him attention. You know, that's the last thing Simon needed was for someone to give him attention. The gospel gives no quarter to its rivals. Cannot follow Simon and sorcery and his magic. Let me say that. It's an easier word to say. And follow Jesus at the same time. says because the reason they gave him his attention is because for so long for so long a time he astonished them with his magic arts he had this powerful sway over them and it doesn't matter how long a person has deceived you or me or anyone else the deception will not all of a sudden just turn into truth one day people have been deceived for year after year after year that deception isn't going to just turn into a truth all of a sudden. That points to the excellency of the gospel. With all these news items going on, wouldn't it be fantastic if the number one news item was, there's a Savior. His name is Jesus. He died for you. If that was on the headline. But God's given that role to the church. To us. You know, he, he, he astound, astonished them for a long time with his magic arts. Very dramatic things, probably really convincing things. But as a, a lie is a lie no matter how many times it's repeated and no matter who else believes it, they all gave heed to him. It doesn't matter who else believes it or how many times it's repeated. A lie is a lie is a lie is a lie. I just think for a minute. Here, here's this all these years ago, this spiritual deception. It's all over the place still today. Spiritual deception. It's all around us. How widespread is spiritual deception? They were all deceived by him. He had a powerful persuasion over this city and probably beyond the city even. But that kind of persuasion did not come from God. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Verse 12 and 13 moves to that. But when they believed Philip, so here's all this stuff. Now the gospel comes in. The gospel enters the scene. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Here comes the gospel. Into due battle against all this deception. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel broke the spell of Simon and his magic or his sorcery. Men and women alike were being baptized. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Well, that brings up a whole discussion, doesn't it? Is Simon a believer? Or a non-believer? Was he saved or not? It says Simon himself believed and after being baptized. I think it might be safe to say in the New Testament sense, none of these people who had believed and were baptized were believers in the New Testament sense. Romans 8 9 says, if you do not have the Spirit, you are none of His. The Spirit had not come to them yet, but the Spirit was coming to them. But whether, some say yes, Simon was a believer. Some say no. I happen to lean toward no, and there's reasons for that we'll get here, but that's not the point. That's not the point of what Luke is getting at. To spend a whole bunch of time trying to decipher whether or not Simon is a believer or an unbeliever, and then go from there into this text and try to deduce what it is we're to learn from this, misses the point completely. This is not about Simon. This is someone else writing about the book of Acts, about another text, I believe, but, and this is a paraphrase of what they wrote. This is an original with me, but I like it. I put it down in a paraphrase. 
The book of Acts is not primarily concerned with providing for us human examples to either emulate or to, or to avoid. Let me say that again. The book of Acts is not primarily concerned with providing, providing for us examples to either emulate or avoid. Instead, it repeatedly calls us to reflect upon the work of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ and the establishment of the church by the work of the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts is all about the gospel and the advance of the gospel. That's what it's about. And that's what this section of Scripture is about as well. But whether or not Simon is a believer or an unbeliever, let me just say this with regard to that. Um, for Simon, I think his problem is he, he's not completely surrendered to the message. He's not completely surrendered to Christ because the gospel will give no quarter to rivals. And here's another illustration. World War II ends, and I forget all the generals that are on the battleship Missouri, and the Japanese generals are going to come and they're going to sign... You know what they're going to sign when they sign the end, the end of the hostilities between Japan and the United States? And I think um, the leader of Japan is there as well. Hirohito, I think his name is. You know what they sign? An unconditional surrender. It's an unconditional surrender. Japan is saying with that unconditional surrender, you rule us. This is unconditional. We're acknowledging. We surrender completely to your rule. That's unconditional surrender. I don't think Simon's done that. That's what he needed to do. Because the gospel will give no quarter to rivals. When I came to faith in Christ, I don't know where you were at when you came to faith in Christ, but I know where I was at. And it was an unconditional surrender to the Word of God. It was an unconditional surrender to the Gospel. It was an unconditional surrender. I didn't say, God, I'll believe that if. It wasn't like that. It wasn't like that at all. I saw it for what it was, and I believed no matter what it meant to me as far as after. I didn't know what. I didn't even have a concept of that. It was just a complete, I need a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior, and I recognize I can trust Him Completely. I'm trusting Him. I'm trusting Jesus. Unconditional surrender. Amen. Unconditional. So Simon needed to do that. But Simon's condition seemed to be maintaining his selfish ends and his motives. Really, Simon comes across to me as a, price, a prosperity gospel guy, doesn't he? He's not the first, maybe Ananias and Sapphira might have been the first, but he's a prosperity gospel guy. I'm talking about the excellencies of the gospel, three things that set the gospel apart from all other messages, all other news, all other voices. And the first one is, the gospel gives no quarter to rivals. It is above all rivals. It is above any news item today. The world doesn't need another news item about how to figure out the last week's news item to figure out how they're going to be next week for that news item. The, the world needs the gospel. The world needs the gospel. Second point, the gospel is beyond all prejudice. It goes beyond all prejudice. It's unbound in its reach. It tears down barriers. There is nothing, I already said this in a different way, there is nothing more prominent in the book of Acts. There is nothing more prominent in the book of Acts than the spread of the gospel. And the gospel spreads, and we see that as we've gone through this book, we saw the gospel spread regardless of language barrier, regardless of ge geographical barriers, of uh, status, of ethnicity, of gender, men and women were believing, of culture. There are no obstacles at all for the gospel. The gospel goes beyond all prejudice. Luke makes it clear that no one is beyond God's saving power and no one is exempt from the need of God's redeeming grace. That's originally with someone else, but it's beautifully worded, isn't it? Luke makes it clear that no one is beyond God's saving power and no one is exempt from the need of God's redeeming grace. Simon claimed to be what the great power of and I, I'm not even going to add the Lord's name after that he claimed to be something 
that the gospel is. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So now Luke takes us back to Jerusalem in verse 14. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word, they sent them Peter and John. Those are beautiful words. Patrick mentioned that in, in, a, in, a, in an eloquent way before, um, before I came up here this morning. Those are beautiful words. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John. Here are the apostles. They're still at Jerusalem. And um, this lets us know that the news of the advance of the gospel has reached the ears of the apostles while they're there. They're still in contact with the scattered church. I don't think that's a small thing. I think that's a big thing. There are, and the apostles are still recognized as those who are in authority over the church. Ephesians 2.20 tells us the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. Same is true today. The same we have the word of God complete. But here are the 12 apostles functioning together and making decisions. And they sent, that's kind of a neat thought too, it's not just Peter and John making this decision. The apostles come together and they make this decision and Peter and John go. And they didn't come because of persecution, but they came, they came to pray. When they heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. The gospel goes beyond all prejudice. The gospel is an excellent message. It's a preeminent message. Um, it has distinction. It's set apart because it goes beyond all prejudice. Who came, it says they came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. They took to the Lord a petition that those whom they took this petition to the Lord on behalf of these people they didn't get along with. For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, this animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews existed. And now they are going before the Lord with a petition that they might receive the Holy Spirit. What a tremendous thing is happening here, eh? The gospel goes beyond all prejudice. The ministry of the scattered church and of Philip and the gospel did what hundreds of years was never able to do. Sometimes people will say time, time is the healer of all wounds. Apparently not, right? <laughs> Apparently not. These Samaritans are going to become part of the church. These Samaritans who in Nehemiah's day wanted to be a part of the rebuilding of the temple and were told, no, you got no part in this, are going to become a part of the temple of the living God in which God dwells by His Spirit. And the apostles are there to pray for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. The gospel goes beyond all prejudice. It's excellent because it goes beyond all prejudice. It just tears down prejudicial barriers. So what are we to make of this? They didn't receive the Holy Spirit when they believed. What are we to make of that? Let's deal with that. And I want to do it, deal with it in this way. Whatever reasons we assign to this, because it says there, they believed and they were baptized, and we know that when we believe, we receive the Holy Spirit. I know it happened to me in real time. I was changed instantly, and I didn't even know how to term it theologically. I didn't know the verses that existed to explain what happened, right? We know that when a believer, when someone believes, the Holy Spirit comes in. Now, it's not always that dramatic with everyone who believes, but it was with me. My whole life changed like that. I wasn't changing anything. I was being changed. We know that happens. But what do we do with this? What do we do with this? They believed, they were baptized, and they didn't receive the Holy Spirit. Our apostles had to come down and pray. Here's what I, here's what, here's what I want to share with you. Whatever reasons we assign to this, it is evident that God was pleased to send the Holy Spirit in response to the actions taken by the apostles. God was pleased to send His Holy Spirit in response to the actions taken. So if we're looking at this, a God starting point is a good starting point. Okay? And God was pleased to tear down the barrier of prejudice 
through the gospel. And God was pleased to have the apostles take part in what he was doing with regard to that. And God was pleased to have the apostles there to witness that, to experience that, to, 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 to tear down that wall, that barrier that would have kept them apart, that would have probably caused some other church to come up. The church of Simon and his saints, right? The church of Simon and his saints would have sprung up, but that's not what's going to happen. To not allow any admixture with regard to the gospel. And to have Philip's message confirmed. God was pleased to have Philip's message confirmed because our last verse in today's text is, so when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, solemnly testified, what are they doing? They're testifying to Philip's message. They're telling the Samaritans, what Philip told you is right. We're testifying. You've got the truth. And God was pleased to have the apostles there to restrain Simon as well. The gospel is a wonderful message because it goes beyond all prejudice. The gospel is a wonderful message because it is above all rivals. There's a lot of other voices telling us all kinds of stuff. But the headline in the news tomorrow could be the gospel message. And we would rejoice in that. It's what the world needs. And the gospel is excellent because it gives no heed to dilution or pollution. It's not, it doesn't tolerate dilution. It's, it's unadulterated in its content. That's what I'm trying to say. Christianity is not a composite of beliefs. Christianity is Christ. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. Christianity is not a composite of beliefs. Christianity is Christ. The gospel and its blessings are not to be blended with other beliefs. It allows for no admixture with error. That's the last point today with the, with the verses we have here. Um, now when Simon saw, this introduces us to the next step here in verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. There's a bunch more yuck, right? Simon is a very observant fellow, isn't he? Simon's lost some clout with the people. The man who had this great following has become a follower, and now he sees this amazing thing happen, and he notices that the Spirit was bestowed to the laying on of the apostles' hands, so he offers them money. Yuck. Verse 19, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon sees the hands laid on. You know, you can make a doctrine out of that, but you probably ought not to. <laughs> that the apostles need to lay hands on us to receive the Holy Spirit. That would mean there would have to be apostles today, and there are none. Um, Acts is a transitional book. We know that, especially the first ten chapters. And um, just care should be taken not to make a doctrine out of a transitional book. But I would make note of this. There's no change in the pattern. It's always believe and then receive the Holy Spirit. There's no change in the pattern. It might have taken a couple of days, but it was believe and receive. There was no regeneration by the Holy Spirit and then a belief that took place because of that regeneration. It's believe and receive. It's believe in Christ and be sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's that order every time. But here's Simon in verse 19 saying, Give this authority to me as well so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He wants authority. That's what he wants. Adrian Rogers gives a wonderful message about authority. He says, You will never be in authority until you learn how to be under authority. I get that. I started work when I was 13 years old. I had a job. I had a boss. He was my authority. 
when you work on a farm, you know who your authority is, right? You'll never be in authority until you learn how to be under authority. You can look that message up by Adrian Rogers. Listen to that this afternoon. You'd be blessed. It's fantastic. Um, I've listened to it multiple times. Anyhow, it says, so that everyone, so that everyone whom I lay my hands on, so that Simon's man-centered philosophy comes back to the front. All things by me, all things for me, all things from me, it's all about me. Brr. Ugh. Yuck, right? Look, we get there. All of us probably as believers get there from time to time. And the Holy Spirit kind of checks us up and says, hey, <laughs> did you notice what you just did there? And what happens? That's why I'm doing that. Yuck. Gotten there. I know what that feels like. Oh, Lord, that's awful. I don't want to be there. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. The, this last point, the gospel will give no heed to dilution or pollution. The gospel will not tolerate impurities. There are some things that money just cannot buy. Peter says, and but Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you're because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. I should be reading that a lot more forcefully than I am. Let your silver perish with you because you thought the gift of God could be obtained by money. That's the I'm probably more forceful than that. I should read it. That's how forceful Peter is being with with Simon here. There's some things that cannot be bought. The gift of God can never be bought. The man of God or the woman of God should never be bought. And a clean heart before God has only been bought at the expense of the precious blood of Christ. There are some things that money cannot buy. Because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no share in this ministry your heart is not right before God. All this language, this is why I say I don't believe Simon's a believer. All this language speaks of someone who has never trusted Christ. You know, what, what is that? He believed, he was baptized. The 18-inch miss, I don't know if it's 18 inches between my heart and my head, but it's a misfire, right? He, intellectual assent without believing faith. What contrasts are being made here? He's in the gall of bitterness, it says. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, if possible, and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. I said this section is all about the gospel, and even this is about the gospel, because when you read that, you think, yuck, in the gall of bitterness, in bondage of iniquity, what a more wonderful place to say, yeah, Simon, but you can be forgiven. The gospel message is for you. Look what Simon says, though, and it's so sad. But Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me. You know when you're not in right relationship with the Lord? How difficult it is to pray to Him? You don't have that. That fellowship isn't there. You can't pray to Him. Pray to the Lord for me. There's an unwillingness to pray. Pray, pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Simon needed to be broken there. He needed to trust Jesus. Talking about the excellency of the gospel today. The gospel is excellent and it's obvious from this text, to me at least, because the gospel gives no quarter. The gospel goes beyond all prejudice. And the gospel will not tolerate dilution or pollution. The gospel is the gospel of God in Romans 1.1. The gospel is the gospel of His Son in Romans 1.9. The gospel is the gospel of of Christ in Romans 1.16. The gospel of Christ. The power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the gospel of peace in Romans 10.15. I thank the Lord it's that. The gospel of peace. The gospel is the gospel of the grace of God in Acts 20.24. The gospel of the grace of God 
unmerited favor. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve salvation, but God has given it. God has offered salvation. God has provided a way of salvation. The gospel is the gospel of your salvation in Ephesians 1.13 to believers. And the gospel is the glorious gospel in 1 Timothy 1.11. And I just want to close with this thought from 1 Timothy 1.10 and 11. Paul lists some things to Timothy about some wicked things. And then he says, he, he adds to that, if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, comma, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. If there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. That couple of words there, that few words there tells me that which does not line up with the gospel is not sound doctrine. That which does not line up with the glorious gospel is not in line with sound doctrine. Guys, I told you when I began, I've changed up the way I'm preparing for these. It just kind of ends abruptly like this. So I'll work on that as well. But we've come to the conclusion of this. And what I'm trying to say to you today in a nutshell is we have the best message the greatest message for a world that desperately hears it. When I heard Cindy gasp this morning in the kitchen at a news item she read, I, I thought she cut her finger wide open and gasped as that, like that. Eh? An audible, emotive gasp at a news item. We've got the best message, the message the world needs, and we've been given the responsibility of sharing that, of sharing that. If you're wondering how to do that, and I'm, I should not assume that every believer in here would know how to do that, Ask Ron, ask Patrick, ask Rick, ask someone else. Ask me if you'd like. There's wonderful ways to share the gospel, just conversationally. Um, but we ought to be sharing the gospel. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel and the wonderful message that it is. It, it has no rivals. It goes beyond all prejudices, Lord, and it, it will tolerate no pollution. Thank you for that. The gospel is pure. There's a purity to the gospel, and we love that, Lord. Thank you for that truth. The gospel is, in its content, that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried according to the Scriptures, and that He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by many. Thank you that we serve a risen Savior. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.